Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. In Espanol. <laughs> NSL Double Talk featuring Lisa Soto and Eric Friedberg. Their topic today is cybersecurity. Should we be concerned? Lisa has been named among the National Law Journal's 100 Most Influential Lawyers, and she chairs Hunton's top-ranked global privacy and cybersecurity practice. Lisa serves as the chairperson of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. She is the editor and lead author of the Privacy and Cybersecurity Law Deskbook. Eric has over 30 years of public and private sector experience in law, cybercrime response, IT security, forensics, investigations, and e-discovery. He has helped many Fortune 500 companies improve their governance and technology initiatives. We are so excited to welcome Lisa and Eric to NSL Double Talk. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Eric. How are you? Terrific. Good to see you. So uh, we're going to have a nice talk today about cyber. Absolutely. Let's do it. Why don't you kick it off? All right. Well, why don't we start by... Uh, explaining the difference between privacy and security, because I think there's there's always confusion as to what they both mean and, and the fact that they're distinct concepts. So when we think about data privacy, we think about the appropriate uses of data. How should data be collected, used, and disclosed? When we think about security, which is really the flip side of the same coin, we think about the security of data, keeping data safe, maintaining the integrity of data, keeping data confidential. So two sides of the same coin. uh, And of course, you can't have privacy without having security, but they are in fact distinct concepts. And we can go on to really now focus, I think, on the cybersecurity aspects. Perfect. Let's do that. So um, why don't we talk a little bit about the cybersecurity threat landscape, which means who are the bad actors out there? What are they interested in achieving? Uh, How do they affect companies and individuals? What are they looking for and why do they hack and why do they do what they do? And uh, as you and I deal with every day, really a number of buckets of threat actors. Uh, The first are state-sponsored agents, hackers that are working on behalf of governments to hack into companies or individuals for a variety of reasons. Those primarily uh, in the last number of years have focused around China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea are currently the top big adversaries. Are we seeing Vietnam in there as well? I think I see Vietnam more as not a a player but a location. Uh, We trace attacks back to Vietnam and not necessarily Vietnam as a country acting but – as a location where people may or may not set up infrastructure. Um, In addition to state-sponsored agents, there's obviously insiders uh, represent an enormous risk. And people think always when they think about hacking about external forces and people hacking that are uh, hacking from the outside. But a lot of times it's an insider. uh, And sometimes the insider is a malicious insider, somebody that's trying to do damage. But 
as many of the top breaches in 2018 showed, sometimes the insider is just negligently configuring a server and there's negligent data leakage. For example, upon Amazon Web Services, somebody configures what's called an S3 bucket, which is a, a repository of web-based data in the Amazon cloud, to be public-facing when it's supposed to be private-facing. So if you look at the top 2018 breaches, about 30% of them are just data leakage because people set up their servers the wrong way. That happens routinely, of course. Human error is, uh, is, is rife in this environment. Sure, and your data reporting obligations are the exact same, whether somebody maliciously hacked in from the outside or whether they set up a server inadvertently and made it public. The other buckets are people that are economically motivated to hack and do so for monetary gain. Interestingly, over the past couple of years, we've seen a blur between some of the state-sponsored campaigns and the economically motivated hackers, especially in Russia, where sometimes the state governments are leveraging criminal organizations to do what we call the break-ins, and then the state-sponsored agents are coming in behind that. They let the break-in crew take things that they can monetize, and then the state-sponsored crew comes in and gathers information, whether it is to gather information on individuals to sort of look for people that they can target to be assets for them in the intelligence community or gain information on, for example, people's opinions, editorial board's opinions, uh, information about what big companies are thinking about their country, etc. I think that's exactly right. Um, and these are known as APT attacks, advanced persistent threats. And the reason for that is that these folks are, are retained by governments. They are extremely persistent. We see them sometimes coming online at 9 a.m., for example, Beijing time, and going offline at 5 p.m. Beijing time. They are government workers. So first bucket being uh, APT attacks, nation-state attacks, second being traditional hackers who are in it for monetary gain. And then I think I would add to that hacktivists, folks who are uh, essentially anarchists who are set out to embarrass, for example, senior executives. Not all of these issues impact personal information. Some of Sometimes we see, for example, source code theft or theft of M&A information or financial data. But very frequently we see theft of personal information. And sure. it is that data that is subject to many, many breach notification laws, uh, both here in the United States and, and overseas as well. And just to give a sense of the, the landscape with respect to breach notification, there are 54 laws in the United States, as absurd as that sounds, 50 state laws, plus Guam, U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, and D.C., where there is an obligation for an entity to notify the affected individuals in the event that there's been a compromise of their data. And we have similar laws overseas as well. Yeah. And what's interesting is, is that a lot of the techniques that are used against big corporations are some of the same techniques that are used against individuals. A lot of times individuals are targeted in their individual capacity or sometimes in their capacity as an executive for a big company. Probably one of the top attack vectors still which is so effective, is phishing, which is somebody sends somebody an email 
from an email address that looks like a legitimate email address, but is like usually one letter off or a number off. And the recipient doesn't notice that somebody has actually set up a fake domain that looks a lot like the real domain of the recipient. And the recipient clicks on either a link or an attachment, right? Those are the two main rules. Do not click on a link and do not click on an attachment if you don't know really for sure who's sending you this. And as the attackers get more sophisticated, it's unbelievable how much research they will do to make that email look like it's legitimate. They'll do your LinkedIn research, they'll look at your profiles, they'll look at your media clips, they'll look at your organization to figure out who should I pretend I'm going to be so that when I send this email to Lisa, she thinks it's legit and she will click on that link or click on that attachment. So a lot of people fall for that in their individual capacities. In the corporate context, what attackers are doing is they're sending out a number of those phishing emails. It may be to 5, 10, 15, it may be to 100 people. The more sophisticated attackers send it out to a smaller group of people so it doesn't create a lot of noise. But they only need one person to click on anything like that to get a foothold in the organization because when you click on it, it embeds malware on your computer and then they try to take over your computer and then move into the corporate network from there. These are incredibly sophisticated attacks in, in some cases, and we've seen huge amounts of money going out the door in response to what appears to be a legitimate email exchange with somebody with whom you have been communicating for a while. But then the attacker gets right in the middle of that exchange and then uh, sends wire transfer instructions, for example, to a bank that is not the usual bank, and there goes oh, the money yeah. right out the door. Um, so it, it is, it's quite an insidious uh, threat. And of course, we've also seen um, just a huge increase in ransomware over the last few years um, that, that's become uh, really just rampant in corporate America and at the individual level as well. I just heard last night about a ransomware attack where the threat actor demanded half a million, which is quite unusual, half a million in Bitcoin. Um, quite unusual. Usually these amounts are, are much smaller because they want to make it reasonably painless for you to just pay and get the decryption key sometimes. Yes. Uh, when in fact you do get the decryption key, which is not always the case when your data is subject to ransomware. That's exactly right. And you and I and other professionals in the area have helped companies and individuals prepare for these kind of things because you can anticipate how to react to these kind of events and preparation and education is key. So when you talk about a cyber preparedness program, education and training is an enormous part of it. So for example, on phishing, if you don't educate your staff that this is an attack vector and that they are going to be targeted, your click rate can be 20-30% of your employees. After professional training on anti-phishing, that click rate goes down to 1%, 2%, 3%, to single digits. So it's not perfect, and this is one of the big problems about cyber, which is the attacker only has to be right one out of 100 times, and the company has to be right 100 out of 100 times in order to achieve a defense. But still, you want to slow the attacker down. You want to make it harder than it is to sort of hack the next person down the block. And you want to 
shoo the attacker down the block to the to the person where it's easier. Because remarkably, even state-sponsored agents will attack first with the most basic, simple, non-sophisticated methods if they find that they work. Well, we could have Chinese hackers that will use the most obvious cyber hacking 101 methods because why bring out the heavy guns if you don't need to? You see a lot of books and articles about sort of zero-day attacks where they're cooking up in their cyber labs attacks that nobody has ever seen before. And they will use that against a major defense contractor or a major financial firm if they have to. But if they don't and the financial firm or the defense contractor has left a door open that you could open with a 101 type of tool, they will use that. You mentioned insiders as uh, being a threat vector. Also, vendors are a huge source of vulnerability because they have authorized access often to our systems and our data. You could put up fences and gates. You can have a moat surrounding the most secure fortress. But when you put down the bridge to allow that vendor to come across the moat, they have authorized access to get in and to steal essentially the keys to the kingdom. And as with insiders, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes we have rogue vendor employees, but sometimes we have inadvertent actions. And employees of vendors don't know that they're actually providing access to the bad guys and they're letting the intruders right in the door. A hundred percent. And when, when I've done security reviews, for big companies, let's say they're Fortune 10 or Fortune 50 companies, one of the main problems that they have, which a lot of people don't appreciate because people say, oh, well, you know that vendor management is a big issue. Why don't you solve this overnight? The problem is these companies can have three, five, seven, ten thousand 10,000 vendors. And so those vendors are on a schedule to review their questionnaires that they submit, to review the security uh, responses that they submit in response to those questionnaires. A lot of times in the vendor management departments of these companies, it's hard to get through 7,000 vendors in a year. In fact, you can't. So going through your vendor list usually takes a cycle that is two to three years long. And so what happens if you don't get to vendor 6,050 until year three, and it turns out that's the most vulnerable vendor. Obviously, you try to prioritize, and the big companies do this. They don't just do it in some random order. They try to prioritize what vendors have the most access and are the most critical, and let me try to get those in shape. Let's talk about something a little related, which is there's a trend I've noticed, and I'm sure you have as well, that in the area of traditional economically motivated hackers that credit card breaches at stores using point of sale machines, which is the machines that you swipe your credit card through at the stores, has gone down significantly because of the technology that's available for end-to-end encryption. Those have gotten more secure in our estimation, and that has pushed crime towards the e-commerce web-based platforms, and you have hackers injecting essentially credit card number skimming software into the websites where you're going to .com 
locations to purchase things. No question. And, and let's talk a little bit about why. Um, we, we think in this country about um, the various uh, sort of underpinnings of data security in the legal landscape, or at least I do as, as counsel. So we think about what laws are in place at the state level and the federal level, but also what industry standards are in place. And the one that the move of the attackers to e-commerce raises in my mind is the payment card industry data security standard, which has now been in place for a number of years. And while there is little force of law behind it, there are a few state laws that endorse its principles, but really very little force of law. It has become a massively important regime to protect payment card data. And so we now have chip devices at, at most retailers when you're in store, when you're in the brick and mortar environment. But those same protections don't necessarily carry over to the e-commerce world. So that has absolutely um, forced a shift from the the intruders, from the POS uh, brick and mortar world to the e-commerce world. Let's deviate just for a minute to talk a little bit about the legal regime in the United States and, and abroad as well. Um, I think the fragmented nature of the law of data security and cybersecurity really has created an incredibly ripe environment for attackers. So we have at best a patchwork quilt of regulation on data security in, in the United States. I mentioned the data breach notification laws. That probably is the most important corpus of law that has shifted did the landscape, not because it requires certain levels of security, but because it embarrasses companies, because there is that need to essentially stand on your roof and raise the red flag if you've had a data security event. So that's been a very important body of law to shift the security trend within companies. But we also have both laws at the federal level and the state level. It's really a mess of a legal environment out there. And industry standards have therefore filled the gap. When we started our company 15 years ago, it was very hard to get the attention of companies to do proactive cybersecurity work. And then what happened is there was all these class actions that happened as a result of data breaches and regulatory fines. And it was really that pressure that drove a lot of quote unquote voluntary compliance where boards became very cognizant of the liability, they became very cognizant of their reputational risk, and they started to embrace putting in a comprehensive program. So those factors, although there's not a normative standard in the U.S. of what thou shalt do from a cybersecurity perspective, there was enough pressure from the regulatory scheme and the enforcement action and the litigation, that it really started to move the needle in the U.S. And I think that that probably the same thing is going to happen in Europe, that you're no longer going to be able to not pay attention to this area or to not focus on events when they happen necessarily as robustly as you otherwise might. When you have a major financial institution or a top Fortune 10 company, they have taken this so seriously for such a long time that these schemas don't really create a lot of incremental work for them. It creates some, but they're already so compliant and so well-funded and organized and they truly care about this area. What I'm seeing is that these regulations 
are going to hit mid-sized companies way harder. They're very expensive to comply with. They don't have the kind of resources, and they haven't thought things through. When we talk about how you get ahead of the curve here, which I think is possible, and I've seen lots of companies get ahead of the curve and increase their cyber maturity very significantly, one of the first starting points is what security standard am I going to adopt and at what level of maturity am I going to shoot for given the threat landscape, given what I do as a business, given my particular threat history. Obviously, financial firms and defense contractors and critical infrastructure companies, they have to basically shoot for the top rating on all these categories in cyber. But certain other companies don't. But if you haven't started that conversation at the board level on your C-suite with your CISO to figure out how secure do I want to be? Do I want to be able to fend off state-sponsored attackers? Or do I want just moderate security that's more fitting to the fact that I don't have a lot of personal data, for example, as a business, or that I haven't have a, I don't have a big attack history. It's not an easy calculus, but unless you start that conversation, it's hard to make progress. Absolutely. And it's an interesting thing because we've been preaching to the choir, you and I both, for years on cybersecurity preparedness. And it's really only around the 2013-2014 time period that boards got religion on this. And why? Because the Target incident was the first time a CEO resigned, at least in part, as a result of a cybersecurity incident. And then we saw a spate of resignations that followed. So that's where boards and senior executives really start to think hard about this issue. We are, we are seeing real threats um, to the positions of the folks in the senior roles at these companies as a result of cyber risk. Let's talk a little bit about the timeline of a data breach, of a compromise? How do these things happen? How does, um, what's the arc of a breach? Well, typically you learn of a breach in a number of ways. Sometimes the more serious breaches where a state-sponsored entity has attacked you, the government literally just comes over to your business, knocks on your door and uh, says, uh, we have some bad news and we have some bad news. And they tell you, look, you've got a problem. It's coming from such and such an IP address typically don't give you a ton of information, but tell you you're under attack. And they give you some identifiers typically, and they say this is what you should start looking at, and the investigation starts from there. A lot of times the company's own security department figures out that they're under attack because they have all sorts of tools that send off alarms, and somebody notices that one of the alarms went off, and an investigation starts from there. Sometimes an outside security researcher has found something and approaches the company and says, I've noticed, especially in the area of misconfigured servers, they'll say, I noticed that such and such an S3 bucket with all this data of yours is unencrypted and open on the internet. And then an investigation sometimes happens that way. And I think it's really important to note that something like 40% of incidents are actually identified from the outside. So we only find anomalies in our system or issues ourselves only about 60% of the time. And we are looking to external parties to let us know that other percentage, very significant percentage of the time. 
And so once that happens, however it happens, where you get a notification and your internal investigation uh, kicks off, one of the challenges is it's very hard to figure out in a short amount of time what has happened. I can't tell you how many times that people have spoken too quickly about what they thought the extent of the unauthorized access was, and then they have to go revise it a week later or two weeks later. And that often, well, sometimes that's understandable, sometimes it's not, and you have to be very careful about what you say. And there's really not that much you can say because, for example, let's say an attacker comes in and has hopped around from server to server to server to server. We see often 20 to 50 hops before they get to the mother load of information that they're looking for, personally identifying information, healthcare information, et cetera. You raised some great points. When we see a very significant uh, issue in a company, the first thing that we as counsel will do is recommend retaining an external forensic investigator. And of course, the reason for that is that the forensic investigation firms that do this all the time have seen thousands of these events, and they really know where to look in systems to identify the issue. They're much more uh, conversant than internal uh, IT departments are when finding these sorts of issues. We used to have the luxury of time. So we used to be able to conduct a forensic investigation over the course of two, three, four months. And then only at the end of that period, when we had fairly good certainty as to the course of events, did we go out live. We are now under enormous pressure to announce earlier, not only because of legal requirements, but also because of social media pressure. The blogosphere has gone crazy on these issues. So if we don't announce an issue within a very short period of time, you can bet somebody else is going to announce it for you and frame it for you, and then you will have lost the opportunity to frame the issue for yourself. Uh, and I'll, I'll just note here that the communications that we issue in terms of, of breach notification, these are not shoot-from-the-hip sort of communications. They are loaded with legally required content, so they're uh, often less friendly than we would like them to be, less consumer-oriented, and they must contain certain legally required sentences and, and various other content. So we are, we're working hard to, during that period when you might be doing the forensic investigation, we're working hard to put together the required communications. And they need to, uh, to tick all kinds of boxes on the legal front. And then we have to try to make them actually uh, speak to the, to the individual recipient of these communications. If you have not rehearsed that in advance, through what we call a tabletop scenario, it's really difficult to make those calls and pull your team together when you're under attack and expect that it's going to uh, not give somebody a lot of gray hair. Absolutely. <laughs> Lisa, we were just talking about data breach notification, and we all, as individuals, have experienced this personally. We all get in the mail those notifications from companies that have been hacked saying that our data uh, potentially has been compromised and it's an upsetting thing to get. I remember when I got one where a government entity was hacked 
And they literally got, sent me a notice in which they advised me that my digital fingerprints from when I was a prosecutor are now in the hands of the Chinese government. I suspect that's the Office of Personnel Management data Yeah, I was, yeah. it was very unsettling. And so people are getting these all the time. You sort of get numb to it, but you can get numb to it. And so why don't we talk a little bit about how should individuals sort of protect themselves against that kind of notification? Is it all out of their hands or are there things they can do? Well, it's not all out of their hands, although I wouldn't say that it's also completely in the individual's control. I used to ask years ago when I was speaking with in front of an audience, I would ask how many have not received data breach notification uh, letters. And, you know, I would I would get oh, probably 60, 70 percent. Now, when I ask the question, zero. zero, literally zero hands go up. Every single person in every room in which <laughs> yeah. we both speak um, have received uh, yeah, yeah, data yeah. breach notification letters. So what can you do as an individual to protect yourselves? So make sure that you have an identity protection solution uh, in place, uh, whether that's credit monitoring, dark web monitoring, or some other type of monitoring solution. It's also important to pull your credit reports on a periodic basis, and you're entitled to one each year from each of the nationwide consumer reporting agencies. That's Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. And you need to go to those sites to be able to pull your your credit reports and make sure that you don't see anything unusual on those credit reports. So that's an important technique that we can use as individuals. By all means, do not give your social security number to anyone unless you absolutely have to. Um, we have seen on so many, for example, doctors in doctor's offices on the forms that you fill out when you first go to a new doctor, there's a, a little box for social security number. Why in the world does a doctor need your social security number when that has no correlation anymore to your health plan number? Used to, but it doesn't anymore. Make sure you're shredding sensitive documents. So there are certainly some techniques that we can use as individuals to help protect our information. Another one that's very important is the use of multi-factor authentication and complex pass phrases. So over 16 digits is very much recommended now. So use a pass phrase rather than a password. And to the extent you can use multi-factor authentication, certainly do so. Um, and I think biometrics are also really coming into their own as methods of authentication for individuals. You know, it's interesting on biometrics. I will not use biometrics for the following reason, although now you have to do that for your iPhone 10, I suppose. But if you get your password compromised, right, what can you do? Once it's compromised, what do you do? You change your password. You change your password. If you're using your fingerprints or your face, as your, if that becomes the norm and then some hacker gets that file or that cryptographic sum that can substitute for your fingerprints or your face, you can't change either of those, right? You bet. And the hope is that that data is so heavily encrypted when it's stored that it really will only link to your face or your fingerprints or your retinal scans. I agree it's problematic, although I do think biometrics are the way of the future. I think we're going to start to see entree into various web portals or venues through use of biometrics. Well, there's such ease of use. 
Right. So it's a little bit of a value proposition there. It's easy. There are a few obstacles put in your path when you're using biometrics on the one hand. On the other hand, it's a little bit scary. Sure. I mean, we've obviously identified a lot of what the problems are. Let's. There's plenty of solutions, right? I mean, we've seen people, I've seen people, and you've seen people, and industries and companies really up their cybersecurity where they're very tightened up and shipshape. And the saying goes, nobody's unhackable. I mean, if some state-sponsored set of top military hackers wants to break into something and they have a year and a half to do it, they're probably going to get there. But that's the better posture for you where you've created that much of a speed bump where it will take somebody a year to break into your network. And I've seen that over time where people follow an organized plan and have the governance and the will to increase their cybersecurity. And what I find is is that the thing that distinguishes the companies with the best cybersecurity from the companies with not such great cybersecurity is governance and tone at the top and board level and CEO level buy-in. Because once you have CEO and board level buy-in, then the chief information security officer and the CIO don't feel like they are out there fighting this battle by themselves. They have all these people that have their back, not only with organizational support, but with budget. And organizational support is a perfect example, and law firms are a great example of this issue. At many law firms, it's very difficult to impose cybersecurity strictures that make connecting and moving data less convenient, right? And so the top lawyers have a very hard time with that because they view tough cybersecurity measures as somehow slowing them down and decreasing their competitiveness in the market, whether that's the case or not. If the executive committee of the law firm basically says, we are doing this, it gets done. But if the CIO says we are doing this, guess what? It doesn't get done because there's 20 high-powered lawyers that are bringing in 20 to $50 million a year in revenue, and the CIO just does not have the firepower to sort of say to those people, no, we're using multi-factor, and if you're on a plane and you forgot your RSA token, guess what? You can't get on the internet, and you're going to have to watch movies between here and London, right? Which is not what your major lawyer wants to hear. You bet, absolutely. And in fact, uh, we've been hired by a number of law firms over the last few years to come in and assist them. And you mentioned, Eric, earlier, tabletop exercises. They're so important, these sorts of games that you play, because if you can do a tabletop exercise really over and over, one time is not enough. You have to do the multiple times. The idea is to build muscle memory around how to handle an event because an event will happen. A breach, a data compromise will happen. The question is how well do you respond to it when it does? And the only way to respond well is to practice, to have an incident response plan in place. That's a a state-of-the-art incident response plan that evolves over time because this is a very dynamic environment. Number two, do tabletop exercises. Make sure your incident response 
response team knows who they are. Make sure that you have a data breach notification toolkit or some other handbook in place so that you know the types of communications that you're going to have to make. And then we talked about this, making sure you have a vendor management program in place to ensure that your vendors can put in place the safeguards that you expect them to put in place. Yeah. And I would, uh, I would add to that, metrics is so important. In other words, it's one thing where you are reporting up to the board more anecdotally and thematically about your cybersecurity. You cannot manage a cybersecurity program anecdotally and thematically in PowerPoints. So the key to success in this area is saying, first, given who I am as a company, and what the threat landscape looks like and what my own attack history is as a company, what is important to us and what are our crown jewels and what are we trying to protect first and foremost? Then you look at the domains and see which security domains align most importantly with the things that you're trying to protect the most. And then you measure objectively your security in those domains over time. Because what I find is that, and this is happening now, and it's just happening over the last, I would say, three or four years, where the board wants an objective set of criteria and a dashboard to say, how are we doing in this area? It's an enormous project to turn a company from a point where they don't have a standard and where they aren't measuring themselves numerically to one that is. And that's probably a two to three year cycle, but it's doable. And I've seen many companies do it and they're so much better off for it. And two to three years is a very short window in the life of, of the attack timeline. So I think it's it's very important to do it now, to start it now if you haven't started that. At the individual level also, you can do things like make sure that you have antivirus protection in place like Norton or Malwarebytes, one of the vendors to make sure that you have that on your own computer. So don't forget your individual security as well. I think it's important just to hit on um, what's happening today. I think uh, the environment today is absolutely exploding where we have very significantly increased awareness among the public about both privacy and cybersecurity. We now have, as of last year, a very important law in California that passed in the course of a week that really changes the shape of individual rights with respect to data privacy. Individuals in California now have the right to access the data that companies have about them, also have the right in many instances to delete that data and to opt out of the sale of that data. So we are seeing a very significant change both at the state level and now the federal government is also taking up similar measures. So we may see a very significant change at the federal level as well. Something to keep an eye on. Thank you very much, Eric. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, Lisa. Great seeing you as always. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.